Hi everybody, welcome back to Friend Crush. I'm Amber Akilla and today we're joined by Yasmin. Hello! <laughs> Another fellow Sagittarius. I'm just collecting Sagittarius oh, yeah. friends now. <laughs> Holy shit. Um, let's start with an intro about you. Yasmin, tell us about yourself. Well, hello, I'm Yasmin. Um, I'm a photographer primarily, and I run a production company called Culture Machine here in Sydney. Um, I am, I suppose we're going to launch into talking about kind of diaspora and our cultural identity. So I guess I'll, I'll kind of define myself in that way too. So my dad is Balinese, my mom is Greek. I was raised in Bali until the age of eight, and then I moved to Sydney and I've been back and forth. Um, I opened a studio recently here in Sydney and in a nutshell, I am a photographer and content creator and I run a production company and I'm very interested in culture and the mechanics of culture. And mm. that's why I called my company Culture Machine without quite realizing it at the age of 21 when I registered the name. Um, now that I'm 28, uh, it's definitely taken on a whole new meaning for me. Um, and I'm very much unpacking sort of what culture is and what culture means to me mm-hmm. and what culture is in the context of Australia or at least my existence in Australia in 2020. So, how yeah. would you say that, like, <laughs> great intro. Um, how would you say that, like, you started your interest in like, how did your creative journey begin? Like, I think we can all think back to like, oh, it was like in art class or through music for you with photography. Was that kind of like the primary medium that you were always working with? Or did you start with something else and then kind of move into photography later? Yeah, I mean, I think if I go all the way back to my earliest memories, um, I grew up in Bali, like I said, and one of my childhood friends, her mum was originally from Perth, but was an expat living in Bali. Um, it was a very colourful character. She travelled around the world and was very interested in art. She <laughs> had this book, <laughs> David LaChapelle's Heaven to Hell book, uh, which amazing. is a photography book. and so I'm an eight-year-old flicking through these like very graphic pictures of um celebrities Mm -hmm. um there's a lot of nudity a lot of gore a lot of um hyperbole in the way that the photographs are taken um La Chapelle has a great sense of humor and there's a lot of I mean all of these things you know I kind of realized later on Mm -hmm. but as an eight-year-old I was looking at very oversaturated visually stimulating images And I think that if I'm to trace it right back to the beginning, I think that was kind of a moment where I thought, I want to do something like this. (laughs) I want to make images and I want to make images that are Mm -hmm. as Mm -hmm. vibrant in in colour as they are in message. Yeah, so as an eight-year-old, I'm sitting in my friend's villa looking through this massive hard hard cover book of these like visually vibrant, oversaturated images but also kind of metaphorically vibrant images um, that have layers beyond what you're just looking at. There's multiple messages being told and a little bit of humour in it as well. Mm-hmm. So if I am to trace it back, because I've, I've, I've been asked that question a lot, and I think like most creatives are asked that question to kind of think back to when did you first start doing something. Um, and that kind of came to me as a very vivid memory. Like I, I can 
remember sitting there as an eight-year-old and doing that. Um, Mm. So I think that's where it started. And if I was to look at the kind of constant throughout all of my work, I think that's always been something I've aspired to. Creating work that is vibrant, not just on an aesthetic level, but also on you know, through its messages or at least kind of through its wordplay and just kind of having an understanding of context Mm. and message and meaning. Because as I've gotten older, I've realised that photography is a massive responsibility. When you're a photographer, you have the responsibility of representation in your hands. And that is through your subject matter, that is through your direction, that is through what you choose to exclude, that is what you choose to include. On many different levels, a photographer has a massive responsibility and that feeds into culture, which has always been, I think, the crux of what I've been interested in. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, in terms of kind of uh, my early interest uh, would have just been kind of looking at these very visual graphic images, not necessarily understanding the layers of meaning. Mm -hmm. And then my adult journey has been looking at layers of meaning you know, I'm, I'm reading um, many, many things at the moment, like The Artist's Way. And then, oh, God, what, what is the book that I had today that's about reading images from different lenses? It will come back to me. <laughs> but essentially, kind of in my adult life and in my art practice, understanding on several levels what it is that you're trying to do and what you're trying to say mm. more than ever in 2020, I think, yeah. I've been struggling with this idea that it's not enough just to create images. Yeah, You've beyond just aesthetics. What they are. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But it's and it's not something that I think I've mastered yet. Um, mm-hmm. I think I'm negotiating, you know, making a living and working on a commercial level with yeah. also having a responsibility to the community and having a responsibility, I think, to myself and what it is that I want to say as an artist, because you can't, I don't think you can really call yourself an artist unless there is something that you're trying to say. Yeah. I think we can touch on like the, we'll get back to the commercial and like personal work balance. So did you study photography in university? No, um, so I had the opportunity to study. So when I was at uh, when I was in high school, I won a photography competition that was run by UTS, and I got immediate entry into um, photography and situated media. I also won three thousand dollars, which let me buy my first DSLR, mm-hmm. um, a Nikon D ninety for any tech people out there. I decided that studying photography was going to be quite limiting in the sense that I was still very interested in lots of things, including journalism and filmmaking. And so Mm -hmm. I thought doing a BA and doing a more general degree would kind of allow me to dabble in all of those things and decide what it is that I wanted to do. Um, I wasn't quite ready to just focus on photography. And I think I was interested in, like I was saying before, meaning making uh, more than I was interested in aesthetics and the technical side of photography. So mm-hmm. I ended up doing a Bachelor of Arts in Media Arts and Production at UTS, which was a three-year degree. It was kind of all-encompassing, but I did my sub-major in film theory and that was probably the best part of my degree and in many ways has informed the way that I work now and I would say has allowed me to kind of venture into creative directing, which... I've always sort of done through photography, but now in particular, especially when working with clients, I'm providing treatments and I'm giving justification for certain things. I'm referencing back to a lot of the stuff that I studied in film theory. Um, You know, I discovered some of my favorite filmmakers like Pedro Almodovar, and we talked about total cinema, which is about how every single aspect of 
Almodovar's films is telling you something from the set design to the costumes um, to the color palette. And looked at Wong Kar Wai and, and really loved the cinematography and the kind of oversaturated colors in Wong Kar Wai's work. And also the editing style. Um, we looked at Dogma, which is a movement in cinema. It was kind of about breaking all of the conventions of cinema and sort of the suspension of disbelief because you know like cinema traditionally was about going in to see a film and losing all sense of reality and kind of disappearing into this um fantasy world mm. but dogma was this movement that kind of tried to unpack all of that um and moved into i would say kind of um documentary in a way like pseudo documentary which is something i've become really interested in as well so my uni experience was opening up my mind and opening up my resources um, to, to films and directors and concepts. I don't think I ever would have touched on had I not gone to uni. Mm. So no, I didn't study photography. I did study um, an arts degree and I did study film theory. What I do is is multifaceted in a lot of ways, like I think most people. And I would say my, my end goal is to be a director. Um, at the moment, I guess that medium in which I'm directing is, is stills, yeah. but eventually I want it to be film. Yeah, I think that's also like the beauty of our generation as well, being able to, I mean, I think we're kind of coming out of this period where there's a pressure to have to define your career as just one thing and now people are just able to explore different mediums and then kind of like discover along their journey different facets of their creative practice because I think in the same way that I don't feel like just being a DJ is enough for me like I still haven't I'm still discovering what I want to do and learning new things so I don't feel the need to be so attached to any like specific label like they're just for the convenience of other people more so than they are for me and how I would like see or define myself because that's something that changes all the time yeah exactly and one thing flows into the other as well like I think I don't know who said it to me it must have been at uni but someone sort of said like the best filmmakers are people that aren't just looking at films for inspiration they're looking at paintings they're looking at ceramics they're looking at architecture Mm. and they're allowing all of those things to inform their film practice and that's what makes a great anything Um, and I think being multidisciplinary is all just contributing to making you more of a total artist, I think. Mm. But in a lot of ways, like you were saying, it is kind of stigmatized or at least I think our generation, you know, we're called slashies and and the assumption is that we we think we can do everything um, with with jack of all trades, master of none kind of Mm. thing. (laughs) And I think um, we've all come across those stigmas, um, particularly I think with the added element of having a social media profile. Uh, Like for me, you know, I I really hate being called an influencer, but at the same time, I can't be mad about it because I guess I, in a lot of ways, present myself as an influencer. And so I get really frustrated when I feel like, you know, the onus is on me to prove that I'm smart because it's this idea that if you're an influencer or you have a public platform of some sort, um, you know, you're vapid and vague and vacuous and um, you, know, you don't deserve what you have or you just mm. get free things all the time. Um, but I also, I also understand that this industry or I suppose kind of the back end of, of what I work in is a little esoteric in a lot of ways and is a little shrouded in mystery. So mm. I can't 
I can't be, you know, kind of mad about the idea that people sort of think, oh, you know, first and foremost, I think people would think I'm an influencer, um, which I don't, I don't define myself like that. But I, I also can't help kind of um, the way that I present myself or the way that people read me on, on an external level. Mm. Yeah, I think also like social media and young people being able to like build their own platform or be kind of like in eyes of the public also means that you feel like a pressure to define what you do at a young age Mm. and the more like the older that I get the more I realize that you don't have to know exactly what you want to do in your 20s in your 30s in your 40s in your 50s like a lot of the people that I look up to and admire they have done all different things at different stages of their lives sometimes they planned them sometimes they were unplanned and I think that's the beauty of life and having a career and being able to do different things rather than say like when you're 21 you're a photographer and that's what you're going to be forever like the journey that you've had between starting culture machine and where you're at now isn't necessarily something that you could have planned for um at the time but no way yeah yeah. absolutely couldn't have planned for and I still can't plan for I mean 2020 shown us that for everybody like we we think we can sort of forecast or plan our lives to a certain extent. And then 2020 took the, all of that away from us and mm-hmm. went, no, you're going to live week to week, day to yeah. day. And we're not. <laughs> you're going to not understand the concept of time. You're no longer going to know what day it is, what time it is. <laughs> you're going to have perpetual existential crises on yep. a daily, daily, <laughs> hourly basis. Yes. Um, but I think um, on that note, I've reflected on that a lot and thought that I think the only difference between our generation kind of evolving and, and being human uh, and starting out as something at 21 and being something else at 30, the only difference is that our generation lives that out publicly in a lot of ways and lives yeah. that out online. Whereas prior to our generation and prior to social media and the internet, you weren't necessarily documenting every stage of the process in the way that we are now. So it's mm. like everything's online now. You know, you could Google what you and I were doing at whenever we started using the internet and go all the way back to find that whereas you know anything prior to that you can't really go back and look through someone's archives in the same way that you can now Mm. which is why our public presence and the way that we anything we do online is kind of terrifying because as you you know as you see with cancel culture something that you did 20 years ago could Mm. come back now in a way that could never have kind of been documented before so I often worry about the younger generation um, mm. understanding the responsibility or like the permanence of your online existence because I don't think we quite realize it as we're doing it oh yeah, yeah. Instagram post here Instagram post there Twitter post here Twitter post there and you know 20 30 years later you might not be the same person <laughs> and I feel like we don't have as much compassion for the evolution of a human being. Yeah, I agree. Now, as we did, as we may have before. That's definitely something that I've observed and, like, worry about. But I think I'm hoping that, like, moving forward as people become more aware of how you are allowed to change between the ages of 15 and 25 and 35 and 45. And just I think a lot of the problems that we have come from, like, a lack of just education and awareness like if people aren't told that they're able to evolve and learn from their mistakes and how to handle like 
being called out or cancelled in a way that allows for like self-growth rather than being adamant about a position that you took five years ago, five days Mm. ago, five hours ago, then um, hopefully we'll be able to make progress. But Mm. yeah, cancel culture is scary. (laughs) It's terrifying. It's probably one of my biggest fears like and all of my friends know that uh everyone I work with knows that I'm like almost to the point of being um like actually paranoid about every single thing that I do in like from captions to like symbolism to you know the the way that something is styled in a shoot um a lot of the time things are out of my control and mm. particularly in like the commercial realm, that's when I start to become quite like um, observant and really trying to, to kind of go through everything with a fine tooth comb because mm. it, at any point, if that falls back on me as being a part of that team that didn't speak up, then of course I would, I would feel really horrible about it. And I think also, you know, people come for people that have a, a public profile understandably um to give answers so if I was involved in a commercial situation like a a photo shoot or a campaign and it was sort of in in any way offensive um I would feel a massive responsibility to have said something and so I think that a lot of my day-to-day workings are just kind of really trying to cross check things with people and make sure that we're not doing anything offensive Hmm. but I think I really did go through a phase where I struggled with that and just kind of took a massive break because I felt like I was never going to be right and I was never going to be enough. Um, mm. I was always going to be hurting or offending or excluding someone. Yeah. And at some point I was going to be silencing myself. So I think the next stage of my journey now is less about being right and more about being honest. Mm. Um and that takes a lot of courage because, yeah, being honest doesn't always mean being, being right, right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and being agreeable. And I think that a big part of my personality, even as a kid, was being agreeable, um, mm. doing what everyone told me I should do um, and doing what everyone told me was the right thing to do. Yeah, so I and think, trying to make other um, people happy as well. Huge, huge. I don't know if it's like a Sagittarius trait or <laughs> if it's like kind of, you know, the, the different ways we were raised and stuff. But I think um, for sure that's something I'm like workshopping at the moment because it's like how can you be an artist as well without being able to be honest and truthful to yourself? Mm. Um, it's It's something – yeah, it's like an ongoing journey and I think that it's something I'll probably come into more as I get older and I, as I come more into myself. Yeah. I think a lot of this is, is a, uh, an exploration of identity, of yeah, the self. Yeah, definitely self-discovery. Yeah. Yeah, I think like I always say that the onus on women or the responsibility that women are given by like society in terms of being on a moral high ground and being held accountable to this almost like impossible moral standard means that you are kept, you're like confined to like society's expectations or limitations. So one of the most radical things that you can do as a woman is to step into yourself unapologetically with courage and also be willing to admit that you're wrong and willing to grow. I think that's more radical than 
like shrouding yourself or building like a prison in which you like are too fearful to actually like do anything like taking even small steps out of that um like kind of comfort this the comfort zone that you create with this discomfort and this fear is something that is part of artistry and also like just a radical thing for anyone to be doing so because it, mm. I think sometimes it seems like when you're just scrolling through the internet everybody's making all these big declarations about how things should be how things are wrong and then you feel so hopeless because like actual changes that would need to happen in society or that people really need are not anything that can happen with just a tweet or just an Instagram mm. post like it takes yeah it takes a lot of like internal unlearning a lot of structural change in society those things take time but I think on a day-to-day basis being able to you know just like move through the world with a little less fear and like a little more courage a little more honesty is how society is able to progress like collectively rather than feeling like these people are ahead those people are behind and they stay behind like how can you bring close those Mm. gaps like that's Well, exactly. And I think in particular, like this year, a lot of social justice causes and social justice warriors online, it's this whole idea that, you know, if you're contributing to a social justice cause in an echo chamber where everybody agrees with you, are you really doing anything? Are you Mm. really changing anything? Like doing something outside of that context that makes you feel uncomfortable is where change happens, you know? And it's just like, Talking about the same thing on Instagram, for example, that everybody's talking about with the popular opinion that everybody holds, you know, does that actually cause change? Maybe, mm. maybe mm. On, a, on a small level or, or are we actually already in a community, that, like I said, that's an echo chamber, that all of those people already agree with that. Mm. It's outside of that community that we need to start talking to people uh, that don't have that same knowledge and don't think the same way. I really think that for me, the sort of, I, the idea that I've adopted or the, the behavior that I've adopted is that like that actions obviously are more powerful than words, I think. And yeah. if I can embody all of the things that I believe are right and somehow contribute that to the community and do that actively through opportunities I give people, the people I choose to work with, you know, really changing things in terms of like, you know, on set crews, um, really thinking about the people involved with making something and the voices involved with that, that to me, at least in my ability to contribute or give back, is far more powerful than me putting up a post or a hashtag, for me anyway. I think everyone has, like, different roles as well. That's something that I yeah. was um, able to realise. Like, you don't – it's not, like, your personal responsibility to change everything you know I think sometimes when you do feel um you know like empathetic or you do understand the struggles that people are going through or you do want to be able to help you can feel like overwhelmed with where Mm. to begin um and yeah also when it comes to like social media as well like you don't know someone just through what Mm. they post and it is easy to assume that you do but everyone's only sharing like a part of their life whether that is true to themselves or not it's like you just can't hold so much weight on to those things 
um, how people are able to like action change. Some people are really well spoken online, can write or make really eye-catching designs that are able to summarize really complex um, issues. So that's a role that they would play. And for you, because you have a studio now, you're able to hire people and be more conscious about the the decisions that you make in business. That's something that you're able to focus on too. So I think being able to acknowledge that and own it is important. And then just creating separation between like, you're aware that people are going to make assumptions about you, but you know what you're doing and that's something that you're practicing. So that's what's that that's a really good way of summarizing it actually and I think um a really good way of looking at like you were saying everyone's got a different skill set everyone's got a different kind of thing that they can offer um in in all aspects it's like I work in teams all of the time because I love Mm. teams and Mm. I love the collective effort that a group of people can contribute and in those teams every person plays a role everyone's got strengths and everyone's got weaknesses and it doesn't mean any one person is lesser than the other so if you apply that to social justice causes and kind of the greater society you're very right in saying like some people have like pragmatic and practical skills to offer some people are like you said you know they're able to condense complex information into graphics that the average person can quickly consume and and spread information really quickly some people are kind of actively doing that within their communities and then the people like you say they choose to hire and work with so yeah it you can't just blanket judge someone and their contribution to a, a particular cause or you know their how much they've said about something because mm-hmm. not everyone is has strengths in saying or expressing how they feel in a like a condensed concise way to the public and be able to press publish without getting intense anxiety afterwards about mm-hmm. how they're going to be read or misread or how they're going to be judged so mm-hmm. yeah I think it's it's a really good way of looking at things and just saying every person can play a part in this and they can do it in their own way yeah and you have no idea who a person is outside of that offline world and that one kind of dimensional idea that you have of them we'll see you know yeah like everyone's living in their own version of reality as well and whenever you're yeah. looking at something you're bringing your own experience and interpreting it through that so everyone's gonna have a different interpretation I think like where the dissonance really exists is when somebody is like projecting an image that is very contrary to the way that they actually move through the world Mm. and that's where like call out and calling out is necessary but I think most of the time it's kind of just like I don't know everybody is just throwing their insecurities out there and trying to get some sort of feedback from it so I think um yeah for me I've definitely like you said like you obviously been as well like reflecting on it and like processing and thinking about how you can find a balance a workable balance that allows you to create the way that you want to create also um you know be able to make money through the work that you're doing and somehow within that also have a message Mm. as well or to be able to represent something beyond just aesthetics I think absolutely that you yeah. summarize that really well in a <laughs> nutshell um yeah. yeah very much so and I mean with without you know cross-referencing another pod but like I'm a massive fan of, of Flex Mommy and I'm a massive fan of Bobo and Flex and mm-hmm. 
everything that they unpack on this show and, and one of the topics that they talked about the other week was the, trying to introduce this law where celebrities are held accountable and um for for photoshopped images and um mm. you know they sort of unpacked that and and this idea that we look to celebrities or public figures um to be completely honest with us at all times but at what point do we sort of draw the line you know so they were sort of saying you know we can we can ask the kardashians to say this has been photoshopped or this has been retouched or whatever do we then uh, you know do we then ask every single person to do that even if you've got 200 followers because Mm. the extent that you can influence your peers is maybe just as much as if not more than a celebrity so i don't know i mean it's it's that's maybe taking us a little bit off tangent um it's a bit of a convoluted idea but i think in you know outside of social media outside of all of this stuff how do you really know who you are at all times you know I think it's a big thing to ask someone who are you like in general you know most people you say like you know introduce yourself it's no surprise that most people start off with their you know their name their age and what they do mm-hmm. because we don't know how to define ourselves really beyond that um, yeah. and how often are we asked to think about like like no who are you at the core you know tell me about your soul yeah. tell me about your deepest fears and desires <laughs> Crack like open your trauma chest now <laughs> yeah like we are we are all you know defining ourselves on a superficial level because that's all we know how to process mm. um and we're operating in a world that's asking us to present ourselves on face value so yeah I think the the bigger conversation for me is less about kind of like hashtag authentic online and how authentic I am on my Instagram and more about like it's a massive thing to ask any one person to be authentic Mm. in any in every part of their lives because we're constantly in flux and we're constantly adapting to this world around us that's constantly changing Um, and then also on top of that adding on lots of personal experiences that ebb and flow so I think, yeah, our, our understanding of, of people um, and our peers needs to just be a lot more open to consideration, you mm. know? like Yeah, like yeah. in regards to that um, Bobo and Flex episode, which I've also listened to because I stan as well, um, <laughs> I think when it comes to this, like, celebrities having to disclose whether their pictures are Photoshopped or not, it's just like typical band-aid effect that yes. people try to do. Like the issue isn't whether people are photoshopping their pictures or not. It's why are they doing it to begin with exactly. and what is the reason for that. And a lot mm-hmm. of it comes from like unrealistic beauty standards that are projected onto celebrities. Like I think if celebrities didn't have to get work done and go under the knife they probably wouldn't because it's expensive and like maintenance is expensive too but in order for them to exist in that world and for them to maybe do what they want to do they need to do that they feel like they have to in order to keep up in order to keep up appearances and then that is then projected onto the rest of society and that's how people or how companies can sell shit like that's it yeah and that's, that's not going to stop biggest... unrealistic beauty well, standards. Th- th- that's it. And this is the biggest kind of smack in the face for me, I think, this year. Just out of all the rhetoric I've engaged in, there's been a lot of stuff unpacking, lots of things, all coming down to the fact that we operate in a capitalist society. Globally, mm-hmm. we, look, we operate in a capitalist world. And the root of many of these problems comes from capitalism and the 
you know, an inequality in wealth and also just, you know, the rich get richer, the poor get poorer and we're just trying to sell each other shit. Um, And it it sucks because you're also like super aware of it and super uncomfortable with it, but also a part of the system. And just like I'm saying earlier, like, yeah, I'm doing commercial work. I I, I don't hate what I'm doing. I'm not, you know, uh, embarrassed by what I do because I'm always trying to do my best at what I do in some way I'm trying to make some sort of change but at the end of the day I also know that I'm feeding this capitalist machine that's trying to sell shit <laughs> yeah like for our generation we kind of like a, we were and we're growing up in like a more developed society so we are kind of like thrown into the system and you're working through it and then you become aware of it and you feel like you have a choice or you have the space to make these sorts of moral considerations that maybe the the previous generations weren't able to because they're coming from like poverty or they're coming from like Mm -hmm. survive like you basically work to live not live to work our generation is more about like being able to find pleasure in the work that we do but whether that is like realistic or not I think like for me I I recognize that no matter what type of work that I'm doing there's going to be good parts and there's going to be bad parts I just have to find the thing that I'm willing to you know go through those uncomfortable experiences in order to like progress further forward and when it comes to like commercial work I completely I can see like the criticism of it and like the hyper um like commercialization that's happening with creative work but at the same time like when I look back on my short career thus far I can put pieces together and think like if I didn't do that commercial job I wouldn't have been exposed to this other person who's able who I'm able to work with like in a creatively free way and do something that maybe I'm not going to make money from but create something that is going to be able to have like a more authentic message and I think when people get too critical about like this one job that this one person did or like these like tiny little things you lose sight of a a bigger picture and like your career is always going to be a journey there's always going to be mistakes and I think if you're not looking back on work that you've done and thinking like oh I could have done so much better than that then you're not really growing and for anyone to say like oh well like three years ago you did this one job and like are you going to speak on the company Mm -hmm. that you worked and it's like yeah we've moved on oh yeah (laughs) no exactly and it's like you know so for example I think that's a really good point to make where you're like if I hadn't have done this and I hadn't wouldn't have gotten leverage to do this Mm -hmm. um I've always kind of realized that in order to make change um you've got to kind of know the system to break the system in a lot of ways and in order to get to a position of power where you can actually make decisions to some extent you have to kind of work your way up yeah you need resources you you need to gather you need resources exactly and you need somewhat of a a backing behind you where people actually listen to you and and they want to give your kind of word authority so it's like when I go into situations as well it's not I think yeah we are we like people can be too entitled in terms of how much access they're given at like very Mm. early points on in their career and that just comes with also being really enthusiastic and passionate like when you're younger being like Mm. why can't I just do this kind of work or do that kind of work and then when you're actually doing it you're like oh shit like if I didn't for sure get all this experience I wouldn't be able to handle like a bigger job so that's kind of like also 
Yeah, but also realizing as you get older and become more confident that you can say something. You can speak up when you're uncomfortable. Mm. Like you can speak up when something doesn't feel right. Like I I would say that I do that often in in the in the work that I do now. Like when it comes mm-hmm. to casting or when it comes to styling or when it comes to a particular message, you know, I'm constantly reading things and being like, "Hey, I don't know how I feel about this or can we make sure that we're casting this?" And yeah. that to me feels a little bit insensitive. Like I can say all these things now because mm-hmm. I feel like I'm in a position where I'm, I'm given some sort of kind of respect in a way yeah. when I was first starting out I was just a photographer that was like do your job yeah like give us the photos <laughs> do your job like yeah. no one's Press asking you and when, then get out of here <laughs> yeah no one's asking you if you think that hairstyle is offensive or if you think that the way that the stylist dressed her in this outfit is a like no one's asking you those questions nor is anyone mm. listening to you if you vocalize them you know mm-hmm. so now now I, I feel like I am very much saying those things yeah. and oftentimes clients are listening to me so yeah as you say it's you kind of it's a bargaining sort of thing where you're like getting to a point in your career where you have the leverage and the power to actually yeah and that goes back to like the echo chamber thing as well because when you're online and you've curated what you're following it's easy to assume that everybody sees the world the way that you and the people that you follow do but when you actually get into the real world and you're working with clients that are a generation older they're coming from completely different backgrounds different experience like you need to learn how to communicate in a way that you can find a middle ground with them you know like if I'm working with a client that doesn't really understand like the way that feminism has influenced me or the things that I've consumed and lived through that inform my experience and my perspective, I need to learn how to communicate that with them so that we can find like a solution. And because not everybody is going to get it and a lot of people don't get it. And it's also like hard to say that they have to get it too, because we're not Mm. living in like a politically neutral society or in a society that is enlightened. Like everything's fucked up and everybody has a different journey. I think that's another really good point. You know, like we in the creative sphere, we operate as mediators, uh, as mediators between sort of the community that we belong to and the clients that we work with and constantly kind of vacillating between, you know, like, first of all, are you exploiting me or using me as a token? Um, And then secondly, how do I best represent my community or whoever it is that I think that I need to be doing this for Mm -hmm. in a a commercial environment where I'm being told to be authentic, but within the constraints of make sure you show me the logo make sure you show us the logo like every Mm -hmm. shot there's got to be a logo (laughs) you know and you're like but they're like but we just want you like being you but Mm -hmm. with the logo in every shot face front to the like you know Mm -hmm. what I mean so it's this sort of um you've got to take your wins with where they are if that makes it you've got to take your wins with your losses in a lot of ways and you've also Mm -hmm. got to be a very good communicator because one thing that I find really frustrating is like nobody is a mind reader clients are not mind readers in fact they they're really not thinking about much more than kpis they're thinking about selling (laughs) products you know and and you they've come to you because you're cool and young and hip and all of the things that they think they need to market to the biggest consumer market that is the youth like Mm -hmm. That's really what they're here for, right? And like, and that's and that's the bulk of my work is clients coming to me as as a mediator or sort of like a a linking point between them and the youth that they wish so much to appeal to, Mm -hmm. Um, and that youth is highly critical of 
being sold things and highly critical of whether or not something is authentic or whether or not something is cool. And it's like, you can't sell to them unless you understand them and you speak their language. So Mm. it's, it's this, it's this idea that you've got to be very, yeah, you've got to be very good at communicating between the two. And I've definitely been in situations on set where I'm with a client that is much older than me and doesn't get it doesn't understand you know why a certain thing is a certain way and I've got to go right back to the beginning and unpack it for them and be like hey so there's this thing where we need to be considerate of this because of this reason mm-hmm. and they'll be like oh oh okay oh yeah. and it's in your understand. best interests to care so exactly exactly <laughs> if if you would like to not be trolled when this goes up on Instagram I suggest that you listen to me now yeah. Like I suggest that we find a solution to this and not do that and delete yeah. those photos. When I first started the agency side of Culture Machine, um, you know, I remember getting the first message from someone saying, you know, why don't you have enough people of color? You're a person of color. Why don't you represent people of color? And, you know, at the, at that time, I don't know that I was necessarily thinking about it um, yeah. when I You're just first working started in out. the environment. I that was you... working. I was working with it within the constraints of an industry that I was very new at and within the constraints of wanting to get people work. Mm-hmm. And it was just kind of like at that time, there was a particular person that they were looking for and a particular face that they were looking for. Um, and, and as I've evolved and, you know, like I've said, come to terms with the, the sort of power that I have through what I do. I, but the other thing is like, I don't know that I've necessarily overtly gone out to be like, I'm going to sign this, this, and this. Like I've said very honestly with people, like the people that I've signed to the modeling side of the agency are people that I've organically met. Like I have a story about how I met every single one of those people. Mm -hmm. And it was either at a music festival or it was a graphic design um, workshop, or it was through a friend of a friend, or it was, you know, it's not like I I went on Instagram and went looking for person of color (laughs) to sign. Mm -hmm. That wasn't what I was doing at all. Mm -hmm. It was just like, what, who is surrounding me at the moment? Who is a part of my community? What are the faces that I see every day? Mm-hmm. And that's a representation. I think now culture machine, the faces of culture machine are the faces that I see every day and the faces of people that I surround myself with. Mm-hmm. So it's no surprise then that you'll probably start seeing or have seen that a lot of the models that I represent are also talent. They're also making videos. They're doing collage art. They're taking photos. They're, you know, directing sometimes that like, that it's just because I'm surrounding myself with those people and I kind of kind of came into this journey of being wanting to be around more people like me. Mm. Like I definitely think in the beginnings of Coach Machine, I was living in Bondi and I was very much in that bubble. Mm. And I think, you know, maybe subconsciously weighing in on the fact that I was kind of leaning towards my whiteness. Um, I don't, I never really considered that honestly until this year. Mm-hmm. I never really unpacked my proximity to whiteness yeah, until this year. Let's get into that. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, um, yeah, I mean, like growing up, I, I grew up in Bali mm-hmm. and being mixed race or a halfie, it was considered beautiful, desirable. And, you know, I definitely growing up was excited by the idea that I was exotic, being called exotic, um, having people ask, what's your mix? Where are you from? Where are your Mm -hmm. parents from? For me, I always found compliments. Um, And because I think in a lot of ways, I was really proud of my heritage. So um, it didn't really cross my mind that, you know, people were fetishizing or exoticizing me or that there was, you know, some 
sort of inherent racism implied within the sort of um, celebration of me being mixed race. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think also particularly when it came to like beauty standards, um, when I was living in Bali, I felt beautiful and I was told I was beautiful. And then when I moved to Australia, that never happened. Also feel like there was some sort of inherent racism, I guess, in in myself and I suppose what I was seeking out in beauty too. Mm. So um, my journey with proximity to whiteness is is something that is very much sort of a new concept for me to be grappling with because I guess in high school I didn't see that I had any sort of advantage in, in my being mixed race um, because nobody was considering my whiteness um, in high school. I wasn't seeing my proximity to whiteness and I wasn't considering it any sort of a privilege at that point in time yeah I wasn't but you weren't necessarily given like the opportunity to really do that either like I think what's important is that you're becoming aware of these things and you're tr- you're processing and unpacking and learning and growing with it rather than mm. continuing that way you know like I think that's what's yeah empowering and well, Important. Yeah, well, I guess I guess the sort of the, the what what then flipped was when I went to uni, and mm-hmm. then when I started working in the industry, and I would say maybe like a few years ago, when you know for the first time I heard the term POC, and I had mixed race people and well POC people coming to me and saying, you know, I look up to you as a POC feminist online and like the work that you do, and just the fact that you are who you are in the position that you're in, being mm. a POC feminist, and this kind of again this topic of embodied and sort of you know being that person in that position and looking the way that you do uh, has so much power in it in itself yeah so that I was like very taken aback and obviously grateful and proud to hear those things but I was also a little confused because I was like oh you you weren't like yet aware of the influence I wasn't really no and I guess um maybe because I spent a lot of my youth trying to assimilate in a way and sort of you know develop my proximity to whiteness or at least um utilize the the things in front of me that came from my proximity to whiteness I wasn't necessarily considering it mm. um and then I was being told in my older life that I was you know a POC a person who was like they were looking up to that's amazing but then most recently um I think I was sort of holding myself accountable for I remember listening to a podcast where, you know, the discussion was about the convenience of identifying as POC when it works for you and when it doesn't. Mm. And I just thought, shit, have I ever been doing that? You know, like there's certain spheres where, you know, my white education, my white upbringing did great things for me. And then there were certain situations where being a person of color and having an Indonesian dad and growing up mixed race and having, you know, parents that migrated here was working in my favor. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's this whole kind of vacillating between these two worlds and not really belonging to one, one particular world, but then understanding the power and privilege that comes with both sides. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like when I go back to Bali, I've got the power and privilege of being mixed race in the sense that of, you know, I have a white mom or whatever, or I come from some privilege. And then when I'm here, um, the benefit is that I'm not completely white and I kind of, you know, maybe fill a a criteria that they're looking for that is a mixed race person that Mm -hmm. feels safer to a client than someone that's not mixed race. Mm -hmm. So, you know, is that, is that a privilege that I'm, you know, taking 
um, mm. and profiting off of. Mm. Is it so? It's just this internal struggle for me where I'm like, at what point? Um, yeah, well, how do you balance? Yeah, <laughs> how do I balance that? Yeah, I think like um, anybody can adhere to certain beauty standards or present themselves in a way that's going to be like visually appealing but ultimately like if you're put in that position what are you going to say what do you have to say for yourself or what do you represent to the people that then see you or like are represented when I'm in that position I would hope that whatever I represent or what I have to say when when they go like one step deeper that it's going to be something that resonates with them or it's going to be interesting. So I think that's kind of like the important part of being able to process your experience with your proximity to whiteness. And then, of course, now as you're becoming more aware of it, you're putting that into practice in your work in a way that you might not have before. Mm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, um, like I was saying earlier, you know, surrounding myself with people like me and surrounding Mm. myself with the people I want to see get these jobs and the people Mm. that maybe didn't have as much access or were blocked out of the industry you know like my dad worked three jobs as a laborer to get me through school here in Australia and you know experienced racism on a daily basis um and you know didn't speak English very well and that blocked him out of many of the opportunities that I've been given purely because I have a western education and I have Mm a degree um, and that I have a resume and all of these things. So I guess um, underlying a lot of the work that I do now is giving opportunities to people that I see talent in, but I also, and again, it's not, it's not like a handout. It's not a token thing. It's like, I'm surrounding myself with people I like, which also happen to be people of color. And I'm also creating opportunities for them wherever I can with the work that I get. Because you see potential in them as well. You see, I think a lot of us trying our best and constantly learning. And I think I'm just kind of like under the um, sort of my motivation is just to learn as much as I can and Mm. expose myself to as many opinions and as many experiences as possible because that's the only way you can really kind of inform the decisions that you make, um, which comes back to, you know, me wanting to surround myself with people in the crews and the sets that I'm on that can inform me. Cause I think a lot of the time these big mistakes are made when that consideration isn't made um, to those voices. Like mm. for example, there was um, sort of, I probably, I don't know if I should make specific examples, but say, <laughs> you know, uh, a film was made and it was, um, you know, considered to have been racist and, and done the wrong thing. And the filmmaker didn't intend for that. Um, but it was read in that way. Um, but then if you look at the crew involved with that film, um, there were no people of color in that film. And so that's obviously creating an environment where mistakes can easily be made, whether that person intended for that thing to be offensive or for that community to be targeted is one thing. But the fact that they didn't consider asking those people before in any way representing them, Mm -hmm. that's where the problem lies, I think. So like this kind of full circle conversation now, but like, I guess my whole thing in the position that I'm in is yes, I have, you know, achieved a certain level of power and, and that's come through privilege to an extent, but it's also come from a lot of hard work and it's come Mm -hmm. from, you know, 
using the tools that I have, like my education, to further myself, um, the best that I can do is keep learning and keep stimulating my mind and keep trying to empathize by being around people, being Mm -hmm. around a lot of different people. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, going back to our talk about tokenism, I don't think that that is tokenistic or um, that there's anything wrong in trying to search for things outside of, you know, sort of what's immediately around you. But overall, um, you know, what we're asking for takes certain steps and a certain level of discomfort before we can get to this utopian kind of world that we wish for. Yeah, I think, like, in terms of representation, it is twofold because yes, you can make the argument that it is tokenistic or exploitative. There are plenty of cases where that is the case, but at the mm. same time, yeah, you sometimes you it sucks that you just have to like appreciate any step forward mm. as like a good step and hope that there will be further steps. I think that's the thing. Like sometimes people become very um, reductive in the way that they think like that's it like that's the only thing that's going to exist it's like you have to think that this is an opportunity to allow for more people like that to get those opportunities so that they can then the younger generation is looking at that and thinking I could do that or if they can do that then I can do something else like that's kind of where I sit like it's not as easy as just one company that's run by only white people to just suddenly change the way that they hire completely I wish it was that easy but it's not but it takes also those little kids of color to think like yes look exactly. these models working in fashion I really work in fashion maybe not as a model but I'm going to study this thing instead and then hopefully I'll be able to work my way up and well, the system exactly. will change and like yeah. it, you know for, within the film industry for example like when I first started um my main kind of thing that was in front of me was just that I'm a woman trying to work in a man's world like that yeah. was the primary thing that I was dealing with at uni you know being told cinematography it's a man's world you got to hold heavy gear you got to do this you got to do that like this is for a man there's no there's hardly mm. any women cinematographers let alone female directors let alone female mm. anything mm. most of the roles women in film were producers because it was, you know, a, a palatable kind of role for a woman to make, uh, to, to take, um, you know, and, and navigating this, this thing was, you know, a woman can have a certain amount of decision-making power, but surely not, you know, the, the top tier of decision-making Yeah, she needs power, to be told by a man what she needs to be putting together and not to come up right. with the idea herself. Exactly. So I think, you know, primarily I was like, I want to see more women in the industry. I want to see more Mm. female photographers. I want to see more female directors. And so I guess like if I was to kind of have any agenda coming into this industry right from the beginning, it was a feminist agenda. It was, I want to see more women in this industry. And Mm. I know that that's going to catapult change. Um, Now in in 2020, I'm thinking more about cultural diversity and I'm thinking about more diversity, not just in front of the camera, but behind the camera, obviously. And, you know, the complex thing about that is in order to see that diversity, unfortunately, in a lot of ways, it starts with a certain level of tokenism because it's like that, you know, there maybe aren't many the IPOC female cinematographers in the industry. Why is that? Because they didn't have the same access. So does that mean we overtly go out and look for that person or look for someone that could fulfill that role and train them up? Yeah. Is, are you going to call that tokenistic? Maybe, but that gives that one BIPOC woman of color an mm. opportunity <clears throat> that didn't have it before. Do you know what I mean? So it's yeah. Just this I think kind of anyone like, that's thinking that somebody being able to have the opportunity <clears throat> to be trained up in a job that they're 
they previously would not be considered for as being tokenistic is just they're just jealous <laughs> well yeah I guess it's just this thing of like oh you know it's so tokenistic to ask for you know we're looking for this person looking for a BIPOC woman of color mm. well I, I guess that's convoluted by a BIPOC mm. you know do you overtly go out and look at that and by overtly going out to look for that are you inherently racist or tokenistic in doing that it's mm. just like extremely kind of convoluted but at the same time you know the very realist sort of perspective that I have is unless we're doing those things we're not giving entry to those people yeah if your intentions are good and that person is being treated fairly and getting something out of it and then able to progress themselves that is good step and then everything from there is going to be just determined over time like it's not as simple as you can't like you can't have an idea of how something's going to turn out like in the present you know you have to leave room for possibilities that you can't plan for exactly and realize that there's a bigger goal at the end of all of this and Mm. you know you've got to take sort of these smaller steps to get there but um yeah I would say overall and maybe again it's the kind of bubble that I'm in overall I you know sort of pinch myself a lot of the time at how grateful I am for the kind of way that the industry is changing and the way in which I'm allowed to or I decided to operate in it and Mm. the people I get to work with and how many changes I've seen and how much more considerate and respectful people are in a lot of ways. And again, I can't speak for the whole industry because I know there's still a lot of fucked up shit that happens. Mm. Um, But But at least in where you're working, that's what's important because that's where you have influence. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And it's just, you know, being a good human and just being considerate. And if you don't know something, ask. And if asking is offensive or rude, then go and figure it out yourself yeah, do you know, a little google research it exactly <laughs> yeah I think like even for me because I left Australia in 2017 which was like three years ago at that time I didn't feel like represented I didn't feel like there was that much like POC representation especially for women I kind of thought like if I really wanted to do something in Australia I would have to suppress like the outspoken parts of myself or the parts of me that are connected to my identity in order to like move forward I would have to like assimilate Mm. in order Mm. so that's why I was like okay whatever I'm just gonna leave and hope that everyone can the hope that it'll progress like on its own and being back this year I've seen so it's so different like from Mm. the advertisements that I see yeah from even just something like when Neighbours comes on TV and I'm like, oh, there's actually a lot of people of colour in Neighbours. Yeah. I swear like three years ago it was all all white cast and yeah. now there's actually like diversity in Australian yeah. soap TV. So like yeah. I think in three years it's been cool to see like such a huge, I mean, for me it's considered huge considering when yeah. I was growing up there was no <clears throat> people of colour in yeah. anything. <laughs> yeah. So no. Actually, yeah, yeah. That means I remember work like, is being done, and you're a part of that movement too, which is really amazing. Yeah, no, I, I have to say I have the same similar experience, you know, in terms of seeing because it's like you know you don't know something exists until you you see it, and the more we see it, the more we normalize it as well. Normalize mm. is a weird word, but the more mm. sort of we eradicate um, 
this fear of that thing because we're seeing more of it. Like I'm really proud of the work that I get to do. Like I've, I've photographed, um, you know, girls in their hijabs the other day for Popular Simon and I was so excited to do that. And our stylist had the brief to, you know, dress them conservatively and she did all the research that she could looking into what she could pull for clothing and what was appropriate and what wasn't. And, you know, giving those girls an opportunity to, to proudly wear their hijabs and proudly advertise for a brand that is, is accepted by so many people and bought by so many people, you know, in a diverse community. That was really exciting for me because when I first started in the industry, there was a certain type of model. What's exciting about influencer culture, or at least what social media has done, is it's given people a platform to be who they are. And for other people who normally wouldn't see that outside of their little echo chamber, to start seeing that. Mm. Um, and, you know, start wanting to explore that and start being like, oh, you know, I, I want to follow this person because I, I'm really interested in this person's life and I'm going to follow this person. And then, and then you start seeing information on that person's page about certain things, like, for example, their hair or like, you know, the girls with their hijabs kind of showing you different ways to style their hijab. Like, I never would have seen stuff like that before yeah, yeah. without access to the internet. And, um, you know, I think that the digital age... And the access that we've been given to the online world obviously has its positives and negatives. Um, but I suppose the access that I have to other people through my online presence and particularly through my work in photography is, is allowing kind of being involved in those kinds of things and being able to photograph and give people opportunities that mm. I never saw in anything. Like you were saying, when mm. we were growing up in Australia, like, or like there wasn't anyone other than just like, the pretty blonde, um, blue-eyed girls, and again, like, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that it was it was the dominant thing when I was at school, and yeah. I didn't see anything outside of that. And again, like everything we're talking about is just the importance of representation and visibility. Yeah, there's no and having right more than one thing exist at a time, yeah, rather than exactly. just one. Yeah. Thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. What a lovely chat. We'll speak soon. <laughs> <laughs>